We generally think of the patron saint of Valentine's Day as being Cupid, but that's not actually the case. Saint Valentine was a Christian who lived in the third century. He was a pastor of a church near Rome, and he was known for being a passionate evangelist. In fact, in one of the stories, he was brought before a judge and accused of being a Christian. And actually, through his testimony and his witness, the judge who was prosecuting him became a Christian. And uh, just an amazing story. And eventually, he was summoned to appear before the Roman emperor, a guy named Claudius II. And it was in witnessing to the emperor that the emperor got so offended by the gospel that he sentenced Valentine or Valentinus to death and he was executed. He was martyred for his gospel witness. And then eventually it became a feast day when the church was honoring the deaths of those who had been faithful to Christ. And the feast day was February 14th. And I don't know how it got associated with Hallmark and, uh, you know, those little edible hearts that say things on it, like text me. But (laughs) in any case, the real St. Valentine was an evangelist. He was passionate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we think about evangelical Christianity, right? We've been talking about the history of evangelical Christianity. That term evangelical was actually coined by Martin Luther during the Reformation. It was the way that Luther referred to the churches that were breaking away from Roman Catholicism. And he borrowed that term actually from a Greek word, euangelion. You means good. Angelos means message or messenger. It's the Greek word for the good news. It's the Greek word for gospel. So when we call ourselves evangelical, I know today if you ask the average person, what does it mean to be evangelical? They would say, well, that's like a political party or something. But actually... To be evangelical means that you are a Christian who believes in, will fight for, and proclaims faithfully the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And during the Reformation, with Martin Luther and John Calvin and others that we talked about just a couple of weeks ago, their emphasis was on recovering and then preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That flowed out of, as we've talked about already, their commitment to the fact that Christ is the head of the church. And if Christ is Lord of all and Lord of the church, then that means that his word is the authority for the church. And they expressed that in that term that It's a Latin term, scripture alone, sola scriptura. But what that means is that as Christians who affirm that Christ alone is the head of us as believers and our church, that his word is our authority. And if his word is our authority, then the gospel of salvation that is articulated on the pages of scripture is the true gospel. And in the 16th century, that was contrasted with the false gospel of works righteousness that predominated the medieval Roman Catholic system. A a gospel or a message of salvation in that system whereby you worked your way to heaven through the sacramental system. And the reformers said, no, Christ alone is the head of the church, not the pope. The Bible alone is our authority, not the traditions of Roman Catholicism. And therefore, the gospel that is found on the pages of Scripture is the true gospel. And the way in which they preached that gospel was first and foremost by recovering the word of God, translating it from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek, into the languages of the people so that people would have the scriptures in their own language so that they could read the good news of salvation for themselves, understand it, and believe it. And of course, we all know what the gospel is, but I'm going to 
reiterate it just in case there's anyone here who's never heard the gospel before. The good news of salvation through Christ is this, that we as undeserving sinners who had violated God's law deserve nothing but his condemnation. And knowing that we could not save ourselves, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God, very God, God, the son took on flesh and became a man so that as a man, he might live a perfect life and then die a perfect death. And in dying that death, he paid the penalty for sin for all who believe in him. And then three days later, God raised him from the dead as proof that his sacrifice had been accepted And all who place their faith in him will have eternal life. We are forgiven through Christ and we are declared righteous in the eyes of God through Christ. And apart from him, Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, no one comes to the father except through me. And it was after the resurrection and after the ascension Well, after the resurrection, but before the ascension that Jesus gathered his disciples and he told them that they were to go into all the world and they were to make disciples and they were to do that by instructing them, teaching them all that I have commanded you and also baptizing them, which means incorporating them into the church. And ever since in every generation, Christians have been a disciple making people. We don't make disciples of ourselves. We seek to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And even in his ascension, Acts chapter one, Jesus commanded his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the book of Acts actually unfolds. That's almost an outline for the book of Acts. Chapters one to seven is their faithful witness in Jerusalem and Judea. Chapter eight, their witness to Samaria. Chapters nine, all the way through the end of the book, their witness to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts in that sense is still happening today because we as believers are called to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And and actually living in Southern California, we pretty much are at the ends of the earth when you consider where that command was given 2000 years ago. And in Acts chapter four, of course, we have that great statement by the apostles that there is salvation under no other name, but the name of Jesus. And so to be an evangelical Christian means that you are a gospel Christian. That's what evangelical means. You're a gospel Christian. And the entire history of the evangelical church, and not just back to Martin Luther in the 16th century, but all the way back to the apostles, is that we are gospel people and we preach the gospel. And even as we think about Matthew 28 and that command, the great commission, we call it, It really is a command to preach the gospel everywhere you go. As you go, make disciples, baptizing them and instructing them or teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. And so even this morning, and I realize we don't have a PowerPoint, but I do have one point and I think it's powerful. So I have a PowerPoint, even if it's not on the screens behind us. And that is this, I want you to be encouraged and I want your hearts to be compelled towards what it means to be a gospel Christian, a disciple maker. And all this really means is that you're going to be consistent in living out who you are as a Christian in every context of life. And you're going to build relationships with people who are not believers And you're going to use those relationships as they naturally develop as opportunities to tell them the message that's the most important message, not only in all of the world, but the most important message to you. The message that you were lost and now you have been saved, forgiven, set free through Jesus Christ. And it's in many ways, or should be, the most natural thing in the world to 
express that kind of reality with those with whom you engage and interact every day. And so really in our lesson this morning, as we talk a little bit about church history, all I'm going to do is highlight some figures throughout the history of the church who give us examples of being that kind of faithful gospel witness that the New Testament calls all of us to be. In the Reformation, as I said, it was that commitment to Scripture. We're going to let the Word of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, do the work in people's hearts and lives, because that is, in fact, how the gospel works. And so the Reformers were committed to translating the Bible into the language of the people. And in fact, we didn't talk a lot about William Tyndale when we went through that lesson, but... Let me just share a little bit about William Tyndale. So the history of your own English Bible. I know we take for granted the fact that we have English translations. We don't just have one English translation. We have a myriad of English translations. And uh, we have the advantage of being able to even compare those translations through the Bible apps that are on our phones. It wasn't until the 14th century that the Bible even existed in English. Um, It was uh, a man named John Wycliffe, who we did talk about a few weeks ago, who, along with his fellow scholars at Oxford, translated the Bible from Latin, which was the Roman Catholic medieval translation, into English. But it wasn't until the 16th century that we actually had the Bible in English from the original Greek and Hebrew, and it was a man named William Tyndale who led that effort. It was illegal to do this. He had to flee from England and hide out in the mainland of Europe, mainly in areas like Belgium, while he worked on this. And uh, in 1525, he completed the New Testament, and then he got to work translating the Pentateuch from the Hebrew, and he was able to finish that in the mid-1530s. He was arrested and convicted of uh, all of this illegal activity. There were a few other details that played into all of that, but he was burned at the stake for being a Bible translator. And uh, actually, what's really kind of fascinating, if you look in Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's a woodcut, which is like an, an old school illustration. There's a diagram there of William Tyndale being burned at the stake. And he, there's actually a call out of his last words. And his last words reportedly before he died were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Because it was Henry VIII, the king of England, who demanded his execution. And William Tyndale actually was strangled before being burned at the stake because they wanted him to stop talking. How do you stop a martyr from preaching the gospel right before he's being martyred? You strangle him before you burn him at the stake. But what's amazing to me, a couple of things, number one, that William Tyndale would be willing to give his life to get the Bible into English. At that time, they estimate that the entire population of English speakers in the world was probably less than 3 million people. It was a small island dialect off the coast of Europe. Why is William Tyndale giving up his life to get the Bible into the hands of English speakers? Because he recognizes that that is the key to actually seeing people introduced to the gospel and saved. The other thing that's amazing to me about that is it was that prayer, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Two years later, and you remember because we talked about it last week that Henry VIII ended up actually divorcing the Catholic church in an effort to divorce his wife. And the result was that the church of England was born. Two years later, in 1538, Henry VIII authorized the first English translation of the Bible. It's called the Great Bible, and it was almost entirely based on William Tyndale's translation. So you have have the guy that gets killed for translating the Bible. His translation ends up being the primary basis for the English Bible that the guy who killed him authorizes. I don't know. You can't make this stuff up, right? History sometimes is stranger than fiction. That was 1538, the Great Bible. 30 years later, in 1568, there was something called the Bishop's Bible that Queen Elizabeth authorized. It was the 
a horrible translation. Nobody liked it. So a group of English speakers in Geneva created a translation called the Geneva Bible. And that translation was very popular, but it wasn't authorized. So you couldn't use it in church. And all of that then led to a head in 1611 when the King James version of the Bible was authorized by King James. And we talked about that last week as well. But here's the amazing thing. Much of the King James version, which becomes the version that all later translations are based off of more or less, borrowed heavily from Tyndale's original translation work so that Tyndale's efforts are still reflected in your modern version, no matter which translation you're using. I find that amazing. William Tyndale, Bible translator. And I'm going through this Reformation history because I want to set the stage for what the modern missions movement was. It was an effort to take those principles a commitment to Christ as the head of the church, a commitment to his word as the authority for the church, and a commitment to the gospel to take those principles and to apply them in places around the world other than Europe. Because the key to reformation, the key to evangelism, the key to revival is always the same. In 2 Chronicles 33 to 35 in the Old Testament, Josiah, there's a revival that takes place. What is the key to that revival? They recover the law. They found the book of the law in the temple. In the book of Acts, in Acts 6 and Acts 12, multiple times throughout the book of Acts, it says in speaking about the spread of the gospel that the word was doing the work. And all throughout church history, every time there's a genuine revival, the key to that revival is always the faithful preaching of the word of God with specific focus on the message of the gospel. So as we go out from the Reformation through the Puritans, remember we were talking about the Puritans last week, the Puritans flee from England because of religious persecution. This is in the 1630s. They come across to New England, which was supposed to be exactly like England, except it was going to be Puritan rather than Anglican. And they encounter some of these native tribal groups on the east coast of what is today the United States. And what do they do? they start preaching the gospel. And in fact, if you, if you have your Forerunners of the Faith workbook, that's great. If you don't, that's fine too. But I do want to read, one other thing I want to say before I read this, but I, I want to read to you a, a brief history of what I call a, a chain of missions, because I want you to see how faithfulness in one generation of the missionary effort motivates faithfulness in subsequent generations. It's very much like Hebrews chapter 11, right? That great passage of scripture, the, the heroes of the faith or the hall of faith is sometimes what it's called. And you have all of these Old Testament saints who walked by faith and were faithful, which is why it's called the hall of faith. And in Hebrews chapter 12, which of course continues this thought from Hebrews chapter 11, the focus is on Christ, the author and perfecter of the faith. And I know we would never add to the Bible, so I'm not suggesting that, but the idea of Hebrews chapter 11 continues past those Old Testament saints to New Testament believers who were faithful. Their example compels us to walk by faith and to walk in faithfulness. And as we continue that all the way out through church history, we are compelled and motivated in our own faithfulness because of the faithful examples of those who came before us. That's why reading Christian biography is so helpful to your Christian life. So let me give you just a brief snapshot here and... This will correspond to what's in that workbook if you have it. But listen to the faithfulness of one generation spurring on the faithfulness of the next generation, starting with a guy named John Eliot. John Eliot was a Puritan settler in New England who began evangelizing the Native Americans there. He was known as the Apostle to the Indians And he translated the Bible into their native language, helped establish churches, and sparked a missionary movement 
among Christian settlers in the new world. And in fact, uh, I don't remember where it's housed. There's a museum on the East Coast. I would have to go back and look where it is. You can find John Eliot's handwritten translation of the Bible into the Algonquin Indian language. Why is he translating the Bible? Because that's exactly what the reformers had done several generations earlier. Because if you want to see the gospel go forth, it starts with getting the word of God into the language of the people. That missionary spirit inspired men like David Brainerd to similarly devote his life to reaching Native American tribes there on what at that time was the frontiers of the American wilderness. And like we talked about last week, Brainerd died when he was only 29 years old, but his willingness to give his life for that missionary cause inspired none other than Jonathan Edwards, who was so impacted by Brainerd's life that he not only wrote a biography of David Brainerd, published David Brainerd's prayer journal, but also later in his life himself went and became a missionary to the Housatonic tribe on the frontiers of Massachusetts. It was in 1785 then that an English shoe cobbler named a, a, a shoe repairman named William Carey, He's known as the father of modern missions. He, was, he got a copy of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd written by Jonathan Edwards. He got a copy of that biography and he was so moved by it that he determined that he needed to go and take the gospel to India. And the modern missions movement was born. And we'll talk more about William Carey here in just a moment. Carey's example influenced an American missionary named Adoniram Judson, who we'll talk about more in just a moment. It inspired others also. There was a guy named Charles Simeon who was preaching about all of the good that William Carey was doing through his mission efforts there in India. And a guy named Henry Martin heard about it and he decided he also was going to go to India and give his life for gospel advancement. Martin died very young, but he kept a journal and that journal, those memoirs fell into the hands of a man named Anthony Norris Groves. And he was so moved by the biography of Henry Martin that he also determined to go to the mission field. In fact, uh, Anthony Norris Groves is called the father of faith missions because he was committed to just going and trusting God to provide the resources. And he talks about the fact that as he read Henry Martin's memoirs, he was so moved by this man's willingness to burn out for Christ that he himself felt compelled to go. Groves wrote a book called Christian Devotedness in 1825. And again, that book was all about how people, if it's in their heart to go, they should go and trust the Lord to provide the resources. And that book significantly influenced a well-known name, George Mueller, and another well-known name, James Hudson Taylor. And George Mueller not only traveled the world as an evangelist, but also organized a series of uh, orphanages in which the gospel was preached. And Hudson Taylor went and gave his life to taking the gospel to China. Hudson Taylor was one of the first modern missionaries to reach China. He had come back to England and he was urging young people to give their life to missions. And one of the young people who heard him speak was a man named Charles T. Studd, C.T. Studd, who was a famous cricket player in England at the time. And he and six of his other colleagues at Cambridge University decided they were going to give their lives to missions. They're known as the Cambridge Seven. And then it was the life of C.T. Studd, the life of Hudson Taylor, and others that influenced another generation of missionaries, men like Eric Little, 
women like Amy Carmichael, who ministered in India, and men like Jim Elliott, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott. In fact, Jim and Elizabeth Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott has talked about the fact that they were highly influenced by Hudson Taylor's biography. And then, of course, Jim Elliott went and gave his life in reaching Native American tribes in South America. I think it's really kind of interesting, and, and I realize I'm giving you a lot of data, but the point that I want you to take away from this is from John Elliott reaching Native American tribes in North America to Jim Elliott reaching tribes in South America, these generations of missionaries, which really the word missionary sometimes has a negative connotation to it, this generation of gospel-proclaiming, disciple-making Christians who are willing to be exiles for Jesus, as they called themselves, inspired generations after them to go and do the same. And the result is that the gospel was preached throughout the entire world in the 19th and 20th centuries in a way that in a way that is just an incredible testimony to the power of the gospel. And what I think is so cool, and I am going to talk a little bit more about William Carey and Adoniram Judson and C.T. Studd, but what I think is so cool is that here at Grace Church, we are part of a church that understands the implications of that great commission calling. And in the same way that we see these generations of faithfulness before us, how awesome it is for us to get to be part of a church that sends people like this all around the globe to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if Christ is the Lord of the church, and he is, if he is the supreme object of our affection, and he is, and if his glory matters more than anything else, and it does, and if his word is the message through which people are saved by the power of the Holy Spirit, and if he has commissioned us to be messengers of that good news, then what greater way could there be to spend your life than in gospel proclamation ministry, either by going or by supporting. And I'm grateful to be part of a ministry here. I'm grateful to have men like Mark Tatlock as a fellow elder here in this group because of the pivotal role that our church and GMI and TMAI in particular play in realizing this kind of gospel impact, not just here, but everywhere. John Piper has a quote in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, where he says, missions exists because worship doesn't. What he means by that is as those who are committed to seeing unsaved people become worshipers of Jesus Christ, we go to proclaim the gospel so that almost in the words of Paul from 1 Thessalonians, those who worship idols might turn from false worship to turn to worship the true and living God. So when we think about the history of missions and we think about the history of the church, the evangelical church has always been characterized by a desire to see the gospel go forth and to see it go forth primarily through the preaching of the word of God, which is exactly what Paul articulates in Romans chapter 12, uh, that the way, Romans chapter 10, excuse me, that the way in which the unbeliever is saved is through hearing the gospel and they hear the gospel because the gospel is preached. He says that in a rhetorical question, how will they hear without a preacher? And the answer is they won't. So they need people to go. And the history of the modern missions movement is a history of those who were willing to go even at great personal cost. At the end of our time this morning, I'm going to read you a quote from Charles Spurgeon that 
I hope will encourage you. Maybe it will challenge you a little bit. But even as I've been thinking through these things, my own heart has been challenged to consider ways in which I can excel still more in my own commitment to that global gospel advancement. So I want you to be encouraged today, not just because it's like, hey, these guys were faithful and they're awesome, right? William Carey, he's amazing. Adoniram Judson, uh, C.T. Studd. These are some incredible figures in church history and their examples are compelling. But that word compelling implies that we're compelled. And so I hope that you're compelled this morning. So William Carey, let me talk a little bit about William Carey. He was, as I said, a shoe cobbler, a shoe repairman in England who had a knack for learning languages which is amazing. Guys come to seminary and they devote all of their time and attention to studying Greek and Hebrew. William Carey was teaching himself Greek and Hebrew while he was repairing shoes. And again, it was that biography of David Brainerd, which you can read the biography of David Brainerd. So if you want to know what motivated William Carey, you have access to it, but it was Jonathan Edwards's an account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd that gripped William Carey's heart. And you have to understand, this was at a time when the churches in England thought, well, if, if God wants people in other parts of the world to be saved, then he'll figure out a way to save them. We don't need to do anything. We're just going to stay here. And William Carey was like, well, God does want people in other parts of the world to be saved. And he is going to find a way to get the message to them. And the means that he has clearly indicated in his word is us. <laughs> we're, we're the means. We're the instrument. And therefore, I'm going to go. And people thought he was crazy. But he was willing to go. He had a friend named Andrew Fuller who published a little pamphlet called The Gospel Worthy of All acceptation, which just was a way of saying the gospel is worthy to be preached to everyone everywhere. And these things motivated William Carey. He was a pastor. In addition to being a shoe cobbler, he was a pastor in a small town in, in England, a small church in England. He was willing to leave. He actually started the first missionary society because the church wouldn't send anybody he started a organization that was associated with the church, it became the, the Baptist Missionary Society. It was originally called the Particular Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Amongst the Heathens. I'm <laughs> glad they shortened the title, the, the Baptist Missionary Society. Uh, but if, you're, if you've ever been curious, where do all these mission agencies come from? Why are there mission agencies that exist? One of the things that church history does for us is it answers our curiosity. Uh, these parachurch organizations started because in the early uh, 19th century, late 18th century, the churches themselves were so insular that unless you started a new organization, no church was even thinking about sending anyone out. And so William Carey started this organization, the Baptist Missionary Society, and in 1793, he left for India, and he settled in Calcutta, and what did he do? What was his strategy? Well, his strategy was to set up a printing press in Calcutta and to begin translating the Bible into the native languages of India, specifically Bengali, and then he also worked on a Sanskrit translation. Why? Because he understood that Reformation principle, the principle of revival all throughout history. If you want to see revival, if you want to see Reformation, you have to start with recovering the Word of God and making the Word of God available. And so he set up a printing press. Actually, at one point, there was a massive fire in the year 1812 that destroyed much of their work, but they were able to recover the printing press and keep going. 
And then the second thing that you do, in addition to translating the Bible, is you set up a pastoral training school, and that's exactly what they did. So we get the Bible into the language of the people, and then we train pastors to take that message and proclaim it to congregations, and the result is revival. And that's exactly what happened in the life of William Carey, He really was in many ways, just like the reformers, just he was born 200 years later and he took the principles of the reformation and he implemented them in a different part of the world. One of his famous sayings was expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And for those who couldn't come with him, he encouraged them to hold the rope which was his way of saying, I'm going to go down and I need people to hold the rope. He was referring to prayer. He was referring to support. And I think that's a great admonition for us. If you can't go, then hold the rope. Well, one of the missionaries that was incredibly impacted by William Carey's example was an American named Adoniram Judson. Judson was born just shortly after the United States became a nation, and he was born in the home of a congregational minister. He grew up hearing the gospel, but actually when he went off to college, he met a guy named Jacob Eames, And Jacob Eames was a deist, and deism was like the atheism of the 19th century. It acknowledged that God existed, but it said God was disinterested in anything happening in this world, so you can live however you want. It was a practical atheism. And Adoniram Judson, actually on his 18th birthday, I believe it was his 18th birthday, broke his parents' heart by telling them that he was not a Christian, he was a deist. And then he went off to a college in Rhode Island. He wanted to become a playwright. So he's sort of like a kid growing up in a Christian family today who reaches adulthood, tells his parents, I don't want to have anything to do with that church stuff. I'm going out to Hollywood to be a screenwriter. Um, But through some dramatic circumstances, and, and I know I mentioned John Piper earlier, a different John Piper book is Don't Waste Your Life. And in that book, he tells the story of Adniram Judson that one night he was staying in a, uh, an inn, and in the inn, he could hear someone in the next room who was clearly dying, And all throughout the night, he kept being awakened because the guy in the next room was groaning in agony. And uh, the next morning, Adoniram Judson asked the innkeeper, hey, what happened to that guy in the next room? And the innkeeper said, well, he died. And Adoniram Judson said, well, do you know who he was? And the innkeeper said, yeah, his name was Jacob Eames. And Judson was shocked that the guy he had known at the university who had convinced him to become a deist in God's strange providence happened to be the same guy who died in the room next to him in the inn. And God used that event to grab hold of Adoniram Judson's heart. And the result was that Adoniram Judson embraced the Lord Jesus Christ because he, in fact, Piper does a much better job of telling the story, of course. But in telling that story, he says that all night long as Judson laid there and heard the groanings of the guy in the next room, he kept thinking about the reality of eternity and realizing that as a deist, he had no hope for eternity. And God used that event to transform Judson's heart. He enrolled in seminary. And then he committed his life to going to the mission field. Um, I don't have time to read it, but there was, uh, when he asked his future father-in-law to marry his wife, Anne, to marry the daughter, Anne, um, he wrote this incredible letter. Uh, Maybe I should read it because it's Valentine's Day. Okay, so get this. And... I'm a dad who has daughters, so I can imagine receiving this letter 
from the guy who wants to marry my daughter. This is Adoniram Judson, now a believer, committed to going to the mission field, and he's asking for her hand in marriage, asking his future father-in-law, here's how he says it. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure for a heathen land and her subjugation to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Um, no, you cannot marry my daughter. <laughs> but then listen, listen to this second paragraph. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the ad acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her savior from those who are saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Okay, you can marry my daughter. <laughs> That's, that's pretty compelling. And uh, it would actually be somewhat prophetic because he did marry Anne and they uh, left from uh, America. Actually, uh, the first missionaries, the first international missionaries sent out from the United States. And they were intending to go to India to work with William Carey. But when they got there, this is 1812, and when they arrived, they couldn't get a visa from the British East India Trading Company because there was something going on in the world at that time called the War of 1812. So Americans weren't exactly on favorable terms with the British at that point. So he couldn't get a visa, and so he ended up going a little bit further to a place called Burma, modern-day Myanmar. And Adoniram Judson suffered greatly. Um, when there was a civil war there, he was suspected of being a spy. He was imprisoned for about 18 months. He was sent on long, torturous death marches, hung upside down in irons, this kind of stuff, all while his wife, Anne, is desperately trying to secure his release. He finally is released. Anne gets sick and dies. In fact, over the course of his missionary career, he would experience the pain of loss some two dozen times. Family members, children, co-workers. Uh, his work there was very, very difficult. It was illegal per the government to convince anyone to abandon their Buddhism and embrace Christianity. But what does Adoniram Judson do? He focuses on translating the Bible into the Burmese language. And in spite of all of the hardship and all of the, the pain and sacrifice when he dies, the translation work is complete. A hundred churches have been planted. 8,000 Burmese have professed faith in the Lord Jesus. And you, you ask yourself, why would someone give up the comforts of, of relatively comfortable life in the United States to go and experience that kind of imprisonment, torture, death? Well, it was all for the cause of Christ. And in fact, it was, now it's almost 30 years ago, but it was in 1993 that the head of the Myanmar Evangelical Fellowship, he said this, this is amazing to me. He said, today there are 6 million Christians in Myanmar and every one of us trace our spiritual heritage to one man, Adoniram Judson. And when you think about that kind of sacrifice, from a worldly perspective, it looks like, wow, why did you do that? You gave up everything to be rejected, persecuted, to suffer. But then when you step back and you see the fruit of it, you go, wow. Here's 
the influence of one faithful life committed to this kind of gospel proclamation. I don't have much time this morning to talk about Charles Studd. Um, C.T. Studd was a famous cricket player in England in, at Cambridge, so famous that he could have played professionally. And uh, for us here in the U.S., we don't really care about cricket. In fact, we don't really understand cricket. Um, but think of cricket as the baseball of Britain. And it makes a little bit more sense. You have someone who is coming up as one of the best, most celebrated um, college athletes who is almost guaranteed to have a great professional career. And he gives up all of it to go to the mission field because he was influenced by the story of Hudson Taylor, who was the missionary, the first missionary to take the gospel to the interiors of China. And C.T. Studd would spend uh, a period of his life in India, and then he spent a period of his life in China, and then he spent an even longer period of his life in the Congo in Africa. And every place he went was like seven years in India and 10 years in China and like 17 years or something like that in Africa. I don't remember the exact periods of time, but these were long stretches of his life. Everywhere that he went, he was committed to preaching the gospel. And what I love about C.T. Studd is he's the guy that has just such incredible one-liners. If, if Twitter had existed at that time, he would have been maybe the most tweetable of all of the missionaries. But listen to some of the stuff he says. He says, what is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? He's talking about leaving a life of professional athletics to go be a missionary. He says, I know that cricket would, cricket would not last and the, and the honor would not last and nothing in this world would last, but it is worthwhile living for the world to come. And then just one more here. He says, how could I spend the best years of my life in working for myself and the honors and pleasures of this world when thousands and thousands of souls are perishing every day? And some of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with the poem that C.T. Studd wrote. This is probably the thing he's most well-remembered for. But he said this, two little lines... I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Here it is. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's hard for me to think of a better motto for the mindset that says I'm willing to give up everything in order to go do the hardest thing in order to achieve the most glorious thing, which is to see people whose eternity was hell saved through Christ so that their hope is a hope in heaven. Charles Spurgeon um, you guys know Charles Spurgeon because he's quoted a lot, a famous British preacher from the 19th century. Uh, Charles Spurgeon actually worked with D.L. Moody, another well-known name, to create the Wordless Book. The Wordless Book, if you remember, is a, a way of sharing the gospel using different colors, a color to represent sin, a color to represent the sacrifice of Christ, a color to represent growth in the Christian life, and then a color to represent heaven. We usually think of it as a way to teach the gospel to children, but actually it was initially created as a uh, cross-cultural evangelistic tool. Because how do you tell the gospel to someone who you barely speak their language and they barely speak your language? You can use the wordless book to share the basics of the gospel. Anyway, Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor in England, he said this, and this is my closing quote for this morning. 
And this, every time I read this, my own heart is convicted. So just know that I'm being super convicted as I'm saying this. Charles Spurgeon, I plead this day for those who cannot plead for themselves, namely the great outlying masses of the unbelieving world. Our existing pulpits are tolerably well supplied, but we do need men who will build on new foundations. Who will do this? And this was something he said to the preachers in his pastor's school, but it applies to both men and women. He says, are we as a company of faithful men clear in our consciences about the unsaved? Millions have never heard the name of Jesus. Hundreds of millions have seen a missionary only once in their lives and know nothing of our King. Shall we let them perish? The dangers inherent to missions ought not to keep any true man back, even if they were very great, but they are now reduced to a minimum There are hundreds of places where the cross of Christ is unknown to which we can go without risk. And then he asks the question, who will go? So for all of us, we either are going or we're supporting. But missions needs to be at the forefront of our hearts, our prayers, and our desire to see King Jesus exalted in every place around the world. Let me close us in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that we are part of a church that takes the Great Commission seriously. And I thank you for the faithfulness of those missionary families that are doing this work right now all around the globe. I do ask, Lord, that you would make our group here in Cornerstone a group that is committed to this kind of gospel effort. And we're committed to this kind of gospel effort because we're committed to seeing you exalted in every place and your word preached in every church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would raise up those who would go into the fields, laborers into the harvest. And we ask for that, Lord, knowing that you might be calling some of us to be those laborers. But whether we go overseas or we stay here, we know that we are commissioned to share the good news of Jesus with those whom we meet. And so, Lord, whether you call us to a place far away or just to the neighbors next door, We ask that we would be found faithful to do what you have asked us to do as gospel proclaimers and disciple makers who seek to honor Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.